Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, author-researcher David Collis provides a glimpse into Jesus Christ's humanity. When it comes to money, he's talking about capital investment, returns on investment, labor, labor disputes, uh, wages, bad managers, good managers. And I stopped and I thought, how is it possible that a carpenter can know all this? And then it kind of dawned on me that he's actually speaking from his own experiences. He seems to know something that extends beyond the carpenter, the builder. And he uses investment and investment in God as a new metaphor. And I felt that that idea was close to his heart, which probably meant that he came from money. This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. David Collis, the author of Interviewing Jesus the Man, is standing by, and we'll also get a visit from Christian D. Cadieux of Paranormal Contractors. If you could sit down with Jesus of Nazareth, what would you ask him? What would you want to know in his book, Interviewing Jesus the Man? The hopes, aspirations, and influences of Jesus are investigated, while new and intimate details are revealed. The book sheds light on Jesus' family, his missing years, the father, John the Baptist, his ministry, and his final days in Jerusalem during Passover. David is a native of Southern California and is versed in the humanities, art, religion, and holds a master's degree in fine art. He's an artist, photographer, carpenter, and designer of a new series of sacred symbols. He characterizes his life as a quest driven by the romance of exploration and invention. David Collis, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for letting me be on the show. My pleasure. Interview with Jesus the Man. The Man, as opposed to the Son of God. Why did you, or how did you decide to take this particular tact or, or approach it from this perspective, focusing on the man? The subtitle of the book actually took me quite some time before I was able to figure it out. And just those two words, the man, really kind of emphasize what it is that I was trying to accomplish. And um, we all know Jesus from one perspective, which is a very Christian point of view, is a very theological point of view. And I was interested in trying to understand the historical side and, the, and his human nature. And I really wanted to dig down and I wanted to kind of walk into his shoes and see what he was seeing and feel what he was seeing or feeling. And I just felt that the theological uh, perspective wasn't allowing me to do that. And so I felt like I needed to strip all of that away so that I can just look at, at, at him. And so I was able to do that by, one, looking at his sayings and just really emphasizing uh, his sayings. And then two, I did a fairly extensive re uh, historical research into him and his time and the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians. And I was able to kind of put him back into his setting. And then when I put um, 
his words and the settings, and then I started to understand what his personality was and his character traits were. I started all putting this into a package. And as I started to look at that package, I started to recognize that the theological concept really doesn't do us much, um, it doesn't do us justice. It tells us something about one, you know, a, a theological and a philosophical point of view, but it just really doesn't bear down into his life. And I really wanted to focus on his life and what he accomplished, what he said, and what his times were like, and the type of person that he was. That's interesting, and I think it's important, because there are still many who dispute an historical Jesus, who who, who don't believe, even though there's more written about him outside of the Bible than there is about Plato or, you know, in, in terms of contemporary um, writings, there are still those who deny that there was an historical Jesus. How would you respond to that after your research? I find this is um, a very key point. So one of the things that I did, aside from doing the historical research as to what the Roman society was like and what uh, ancient Israel was like and, and Greek and the Greeks, I looked at the literature of essentially the Second Temple period. So from the time that the Jews came back from Babylon, there was a, a literary tradition that was different from the earlier and the previous literary tradition in that area. And so I looked at a lot of that material, and I read a lot of that material. And then I was reading the materials that were essentially part of the uh, the Apocryphon, and I was reading the materials from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Library, and I was looking at Jesus's words. And what I started to realize is that there's certain subjects, certain themes, certain ideas that are being worked through this particular period. And then when you get to the first century, everything goes crazy. It's like, you know, like in the um, the Atom Smasher, when the two atoms come together and they collide and then there's an explosion. Well, in a literary point of view, there was an explosion. And this is unprecedented. So I felt that for people to say there was no historical Jesus, that sounds really kind of um, weak to me. I know that I've read some material that, that maybe um, Josephus or other Roman writers were had you know invented this story, but I don't believe that at all. I believe that there was a historical figure. He happened to be a genius. He happened to be dedicated to what he referred to as the father, and that he was a source and an inspiration to many people and to many literary writing type of people who ended up writing about him and wrote about his ideas. And so I just think that from that particular point of view, we're seeing that there was a rupture in the literary traditions of that time, and Jesus seems to be the center of that rupture. Fascinating. Now, an interview setting, which is kind of a, a kind of a cool premise, uh, why did you choose the interview? Well, um, that is like kind of a literary device that I'm very intrigued by. And I have read a lot of material 
both from Plato and even from uh, contemporary uh, physicists and philosophers talking, and it's just a transcripts of their conversations. And when I was thinking about all the information that I had, and I was kind of contemplating what would be the best vehicle to present this information and convey the information, I felt that a more scholarly approach wasn't going to do me any justice. And then I started to think about, you know, the, uh, the like Plato's dialogues. And I thought, you know, I think that would be a really interesting concept to imagine Jesus and I sitting down and essentially having coffee and discussing his life and my life and what has happened to us and what happened to him and what his time was like. And that's what I, that's when it kind of the, the light bulb went on. So we, we know very little about what he looked like, what the man looked like. Uh, we have, of course, you know, paintings and so forth and, art, and artistic renderings and depictions, but we don't know from, from the Bible what he looked like. So was that, was that important to you to be able to visualize as you were imagining yourself sitting across from from Jesus and interviewing him was did you have an image in your mind or was one provided perhaps I never thought in terms of the of visual characterization I was more interested in the conversation as it revolved around what I'm going to refer to as his spiritual philosophy and his teachings and his practice and then I wanted to understand the setting in which he was um, living and how he was able to present that information. So un when it comes to the visual understanding of Jesus, I doesn't I don't really have much of that. However, I mean, where you and I both have um, have been influenced by the various characterizations of him, and I can only assume that those might be or probably accurate. However, I want to mention this. I, the, the thing about Jesus that's one of the more compelling sides to him that um, I was going to say that, that I came to understand is that there was a physicality to him and there was also an intelligence to him. And it's the type of combination between the physicality and the intelligence that I realized that this is a, this is a unique man. Now, just so you know, Plato, too, he was like, a, I think he came from a family of sculptors. So uh, he had kind of the physicality of being able to ha uh, use a hammer and a chisel and, you know, um, work on that all day. And I know how difficult, you know, manual labor is. Uh, at the same time, he had the mind to really kind of penetrate, you know, philosophically. And Jesus had the same um, characteristics. Very intelligent, very rugged in his uh, abilities to, to, to do what he needed to do. You, you focus a lot on the sayings of, of Jesus. And there are, you know, hundreds of sayings in the, in the New Testament. But you also went to, you mentioned uh, the... Um, the library, uh, the Nagamadi. Yes, the Nagamadi. Thank you. The Nagamadi Library that was uncovered in Egypt in the in the nineteen forties from the Gospel yes. of Thomas. Uh, what did the you? The Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is the one of the books that I used extend uh, quite exclusively on this uh, uh, with the writings. Now I had read other materials from the Nag Hammadi Library, but um, the Gospel of Thomas was very specific because inside 
that gospel, there are 114 sayings, depending on which version you're using, it's either 113 or 114, but there are a third of them you're going to find in the New Testament. So the other material are ideas. They're very deep, profound ideas. This is one, this is a, this particular book happens to be directly related to um, Jesus and his sayings. Right. Which is a little different than the others. Right. It doesn't talk about miracles. It doesn't talk about his birth. It doesn't talk about the crucifixion, correct? That's correct. There's no narrative in this. It's just a collection of sayings. Why is that, do you suppose? Wow. Okay. I <laughs> like this is a very challenging question. There are, I think, so we, let me just kind of back up here and just kind of present the table. So we have Jesus, we have his ministry, we have his sayings. And then there is a period of time in which, you know, when Jesus dies, when we get essentially the first written account of something about Jesus. And Paul, at least from the recorded point of view, seems to be the first to have written something about Jesus. And that is somewhere in the year of the early 50s. So roughly 20 years have gone by. And I think that when Paul was out um, proselytizing and doing his evangelical work, I think there got a point where people after the second generation or third generation wanted to have more of a story about Jesus as opposed to having a theory about him or the philosophy about him. And I think that when you got to the narrative gospels, which was, I think Mark was around the, the, the year 70, um, I think that there just happened to be more of a, a need for a narrative more of the storytelling, because that seemed to be what the way, that, I think that was the way that Christianity was able to spread. It wasn't so much about what Jesus was saying as much as it was about the type of person he was and what he did. Exactly, yes. <laughs> okay, so I think that there was that element to it. Okay, so now I think that in between those, though, and can you kind of see what Paul's letters are like, I think that there, were, there was the first rendition of the Gospel of Thomas, which was the collection of Jesus' sayings. And I think either the first or the second saying says that um, these are the words that Jesus spoke and that were recorded. So there was an emphasis on the fact that there was a recording of Jesus' sayings, and the author who compiled these and wrote these felt that that was a very essential element into his Gospel. Now, we can go ahead and debate what that means and what that tells us, but I just think that there was something else going on with another group of Christians that felt that when it got to the narrative that maybe it wasn't always, it wasn't fully accurate and that there were other things within or other ideas that Jesus was um, promoting and discussing that were left out of the New Testament that the the gospel the thomas gospel writers and that community felt was necessary okay uh the um my impression is that your research has sort of led you to conclude that his sayings his parables etc um were sort of autobiographical this wasn't him simply channeling a message from you know the almighty god 
and, 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 and sort of just, you know, mouthing them. I mean, this, this was based, these sayings, these parables, etc., were based on his life experiences. Can you give me an example? Sure. So this is what I um, feel. When Jesus speaks, he's always speaking with an authoritative voice. So he's always speaking from a position of knowing. He's speaking from a position of like clarity and of wisdom, and it's not a position of speculation. So he's always talking about what he knows. So the question is, what is he telling us? Okay, so now we have his spiritual philosophy, and he has the time and, and his settings and what was going on at his particular time. And so I started to recognize that if he he's telling us things that he knows, why isn't he telling me and using his own life story as the examples for his wisdom? And when I started to realize that, that's the light bulb again went on. I know that when I sometimes we'll talk, I will talk in these metaphors and I'll talk about surfing. Well, or being in the ocean or being at the ocean. Well, I grew up at the beach or I used to play a lot of sports. And sometimes when I use, when I talk about uh, spiritual uh, philosophy, I'll use certain metaphors and I'll use either surfing metaphors or ocean metaphors or sports metaphors. And then it was, it was that that I started to recognize that Jesus must've been doing something of the same thing. So he's speaking from a position of knowing He's speaking about what was going on in the society. He's addressing his own society. And he seems to be possibly, in all likelihood, he's using his own life stories to convey his spiritual message, or at least to illustrate the points that he was talking about. Now, here's one case in point. When you look at the Old Testament and you you think about the um, Ten Commandments, you're not going to be talking, you're not going to see money as an operative. It's not going to be something that is going to be discussed quite a bit about. Oh, but he talked a lot about it, didn't he? Yeah, oh, my God. This is when I compiled all of his sayings dealing with money and food and the kingdom of heaven and other subjects. Money, it turned out, was the number one subject. So inside that theme of money, it's broken up into four parts. There's one part of his metaphors, his illustrations, come from what I refer to as the cash crop. He's dealing with growing some type of product and selling the product. The second part is that of a merchant. So he's thinking in terms of the merchant. How does you know one go about finding the best opportunity to you know close a deal, find a deal, etc.? The third he's going to deal with when it comes to money is somebody's involved in some labor. They are either a manager or they're working with their hands. They're doing something in relationship to work. And then the fourth was um, inheritance. So when I looked at his those money sayings and there were these four categories, I then broke it down even further. And so Jesus is now speaking when it comes to money, he's talking about capital investment, returns on investment, labor, labor disputes, uh, wages, uh, bad managers, good managers. And I stopped and I thought, how is it possible that a carpenter can know all this? 
And then it kind of dawned on me that he's actually speaking from his own experiences and probably very close experiences, whether they were um, part of his family, his cousins, uh, you know, other associates. He seems to know something that extends beyond the carpenter, the builder. He knows the he really understands finance in a fairly aggressive manner and he uses investment and investment in God as a new metaphor and I felt that 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 idea was close to his heart which probably meant that he came from money and in the Gospel of Luke um, there is a mention that there's Mary Magdalene and Mary, Jesus's mother, and Susanna and Joanna, and another woman who came from, they were women of means, which is another way of saying that these were wealthy women. Interesting. Okay. Um, you mentioned food. It, yes. do, it does sound like he was a bit of a foodie, doesn't it? Well, and not only that, um, food seems to be a, a big source. So we see it in uh, his temptations. We see it in the kingdom of, uh, excuse me, his, uh, the Lord's prayer. We see it at the end of his life. We see it, um, at the, like the marriage of Cana. Well, wine is part of the food kind of experience. And he seems to, uh, constantly bring people into his realm and food is part of the sharing experience. Sure. And so any, and any part of He's betrayed the, his, while, while eating. Yes. So he likes to eat and he likes to drink. And so you'll see that part of his challenge in the temptations is food. Interesting. And I think, every, you know, obviously everybody, if, you're, if they're going to go onto a fast, is going to be consumed by food because we're not eating it and it's necessary. But there's another element to that. Here's another interesting point. Um, Jesus is going onto a fast he spends the 40 days out in the desert after he sees John the Baptist. And when he comes back, some of the Pharisees are going to ask him about, you know, he's not uh, following uh, some of the rituals and some of the customs, and fasting is one of them. And he just says, really, in a sense, I don't have it in front of me exactly what he says, but he says, so fasting's not necessary. So there seemed to have been something very uh, potent about that experience out in the desert that uh, brought him to some, I think, some new conclusions and some new revelations. And also, it had to do with his body, so there's a certain physical endurance that he had to deal with, you know, being out in the desert for 40 days. So, um, when he's asked those kind of, when, when he's asked about food, he doesn't seem to abide by uh, the rites and the rituals uh, of the Pharisees. Right, the the idea that that was the Sabbath was made for the man as well, and the man the man was man was not made for the Sabbath. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that th those forty days. I mean, obviously, before he begins his his um, his mission. Uh, what I mean, what was he sorting out? Was he trying to to figure out? You know, am I am I um, am I a man? Am I the am I the son of God? Uh, you know, I mean, that must have been the the pivotal moment for him, right? Those forty days. In um, have you ever gone on a vision quest? I have not. Have you had any kind of like, you know, religious experiences in which you're dealing with um, deprivation? No, I'm. I mean, 
if I miss lunch, I get hangry. I can't imagine going. Right. I can't imagine going forty days. I just no. I have not. I mean, I, I I would love to have that type of experience. I prayed for that type of experience. I've not had it. Okay, so all this, the, the the when Jesus, first of all, before John or before Jesus sees John, we see that he is building. He's a carpenter. He sees John. And then after John, he's become the prophet. So John is the link and the bridge between one type of a life and another type of a life. So after John, he's on his ministry. And he is completely dedicated to it. He's focused. He seems like he's a general with an army, and he's the army, and he's out conducting his ministry. He doesn't waver. He doesn't rethink it. He doesn't, you know, backpedal. He doesn't seem to be asking questions like, why am I doing this? So because there seems to be this direction and this focus and this intention and this kind of a, you know, it's like he had this, it's like he was in a, I kind of consider it like he was in a catapult and he was just hurled from you know, this arm, and he was just super directed. And I asked myself, was he that way before, or was it just because of this? And then the question became, what did he know before he got to John, and what did he know after? And what would have happened, what would have needed to happen for him to be kind of shot out of the cannon, so to speak, for him to be that committed and, and filled with that level of sacrifice, the living sacrifice, to be able to do what he did. And I think that there's an element with the 40 days that had to do with evaluation, reevaluation. do I have what it takes, am I driven by my ego, and I think self-doubt, I think that there's a lot of things. And I know that my, from my sense is that when he looked at John, John the Baptist, there was, a, there was a fire in John. And he was dedicated with a lot of purpose, and he was a man of action. And I think that Jesus was a man who was compelled, he understood, he was filled with wisdom, he was filled with some drive, but I think that there was an element, and this is just my speculation, I just think that there was an element with him where there was a, a doubt or a question, but afterwards there was none of that. It's Friday. That means a visit from Christian D. Cadieux, the real John Constantine, paranormal contractors for things that go bump in the night. Hey, Christian, how are you? Hey, Richard. How's it going? Terrific. Thank you. One of the things that you focus on when you do a paranormal investigation is to make sure that there's not some other, let's say, prosaic explanation for what's going on. In other words, it's not necessarily a haunting. There could be some other more rational explanation. You call these false positives. Talk to me about that. A huge portion of my responsibility and, and the services that I offer involve the dismissing of someone who may believe that their environment that they live in is occupied by a paranormal presence. And what people neglect to, to understand is that there are so many variables that come into play 
that can certainly be deemed as a, as a false positive. And, and let me give you an example. Cold spots. There are people who think all of a sudden a cold spot has come into their room or come into where they're sitting or in their bedroom while they're sleeping. And, oh, wow, it, it must be something unexplained because I uh, the windows were closed. But did anyone take the time to, to actually think something as simplistic as the caulking on the window is not loose or weakened? People are very quick to jump and immediately gravitate to something that uh, they, they can't explain being an absolute confirmation of, uh, of a paranormal entity having occupied their environment. Or another perfect example is, you know, people would claim that they get headaches in their home or people might get, they, they can't breathe properly. Have they stopped and taken into consideration what the air quality is in the home, such as their HVAC system, their air handling system? Is there bacteria or mold spores? Mold spores, Richard. I mean, it goes back to the, the days of the Bible in the Old Testament in the book, of, uh, the book of Leviticus. God gives Moses instructions on how step by step how to clean mold. And the fact is, is that mold's been around for ages and it's, there's toxic mold and there's different species of mold toxic, not as toxic. But the fact is, is that these are different variables that, that people could very well experience all the time. And, and it's something that they don't take into consideration. So much of my work is, that is involved is to dismiss it because I won't take on any file unless I have irrefutable evidence and I have completely eliminated all false positives in that environment. So you're not just a paranormal contractor, you're an environmental contractor. Yes, I'm an environmental contractor that specializes in paranormal remediation. That is what separates me from everyone else. And I've done that for close to 20 years, and I've come up with a, a methodology, a system on how to permanently remove them. Christian, thank you so much. Oh, Christian, give us a 1-800 number for people who need to contact you at Paranormal Contractors. Our toll-free number is 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Thanks, Christian. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Christian Cadieux, The Real John Constantine, Paranormal Contractors. For more information, check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. David Collis, the author of Interviewing Jesus the Man, is here. The, the proposal from Satan in, in the wilderness, uh, you know, that um, you can rule the world. Right. You mentioned ego there. Uh, yes. I mean, would Satan have asked that question if he didn't think that there was perhaps a chance? Did Jesus sort of recognize that, yes, I guess I could rule the world? There is an element here. Well, first of all, ego, the, the concept of the ego is more Freudian. And, and so we have to kind of understand that there's a pre-Freudian world and there's a post-Freudian world. And so we're living on the the, the the backside of that. However, that's not to say that, you know, there weren't a lot of spiritual people and sages and saints and, you know, wise men that, you know, recognized, um, you know, what, what drives us. And 
I think that this particular issue, when it comes to ruling the world, is that when you're so free from kind of the normal desires that people have, which is greed and lust and, um, I don't know, laziness and, you know, drive for power, that people like Jesus, with his insights and his knowledge and his abilities, he could have channeled that completely differently. And I think that there's an element of like, what do you really want? Do you want the world of the spirit or do you want the world of the material world? It's one or the other. And I think at that point, Jesus was recognizing that there was an element, there was this desire and truth to the spirit world, the immaterial world, and that that was nurturing him as opposed to uh, Herod the Great, who was, became, um, well, Herod the Great ended up essentially being schizophrenic and paranoid, and um, it said that, you know, he went crazy and um, his body was destroyed and eaten by maggots. So, um, I don't know, maybe that was on Jesus' mind as well, what happens when you have that level of power and you go crazy. Right. Did you learn anything about how Jesus interacted with the disciples, with his followers, uh, sort of man-to-man? Oh, boy, this is an interesting subject. So, I keep... I, I've read the the New Testament back and forth and back and forth uh, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times. And during this particular time when I was researching the book and I was writing the book, I'd have to keep going back and looking at the Gospels. And then I had a little bit of an epiphany where I started to recognize that most of what Jesus is talking about tends to be directed towards his disciples. Now, we would think that there's a lot of times when he's speaking, um, um, uh, like with the Sermon on the Mount, where he's got a big audience and he's talking to all these people. And I'm sure there was that. But there's a lot going on in which Jesus seems to be directing most of his focus and his attention on his disciples. So he was showing them how to be a particular individual who is motivated by the Holy Spirit, is motivated by the Father, and is living their lives as a living sacrifice. And he's showing them how not to engage people in fights, and he's showing people and his disciples how to engage the world through turning the other cheeks, being smart, being intelligent, understanding when when it's time to say something and when it's time to, you know, back off. And that was a, not only did Jesus speak speak wisdom, he also showed wisdom. So when it comes to his disciples, there was that kind of a general attitude that I understood. And um, there was another thing that I started to realize, especially when it's in relationship to the Gospel of Thomas. If you read the Gospel of Thomas, there's 114 sayings that are, for the most part, they're very tricky and they're delicate and they're tough to understand. And there's a there's an there's a an idea behind them that is very profound, and it takes it takes a long time, almost a lifetime of dedication 
to understand the meaning behind the words. And it made me realize that there might have been a few people in his audience that had the ability to understand these deeper truths, Thomas being one of them. The others probably just didn't have the ability. And so the question now becomes, how much time is Jesus going to spend talking about these very profound and deep concepts, knowing that the person on the other end might not have the ability to do that or the talent to, to understand that? And so maybe he was selective based off of some of the people who he interacted with that recognized that he recognized had the ability to go deeper into the philosophical realm as opposed to more of the practical realm. Hmm. Uh, one, um, it's I guess it's well it's it's a, it's one of the miracles, but uh, I've never understood, and I know that you're focusing on the, the humanity, the man, not necessarily the miracles. But I, I don't know, maybe you could help clear this up for me. It's always sort of nagged at me, and that is, I, I think it's both in Mark and Matthew, and that's the cursing of the fig tree. Yes. Uh, and I've never understood what 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 that was what you know people some some people say oh it showed that he had a temper and that he you know um just like sort of explain what that that cursing of the fig tree is all about in your mind there's two parts to this and that is when um i look at the inspirations that jesus was motivated by I can list, you know, I can list A, B, C, D, and E. And then when I look at what the writers were inspired by, I can list part of that list that Jesus was inspired by, but then I'm going to look at this list and I'm going to notice that there's other levels of inspiration and other sources of inspiration. And in that particular instance, the fig tree, if I'm not mistaken, comes from Jonah. So Jonah was asked by God to go to the Assyrians. Um, and that would be like going today in present day um, Syria at Raqqa and trying to discuss uh, with the ISIS fighters right. some new concepts about um, God. Okay, So um, you can understand Jonah's not too happy about wanting to go out there with these types of people because he knows the type of people that they are. And so there's an el there's there's that one illustration of the fig tree being destroyed. Okay, so now we have this element in the Gospels of using the same illustration. We should also, I, I neglected to sort of set that up for, for listeners, those not familiar. And here's food again. Jesus is hungry. You know, he sees this fig tree hoping that there's some fruit there so he can eat. And when there's no fruit, he curses the fig tree. Um, and may no one ever eat fruit from you again or something to that effect. And I'm paraphrasing, I think. And then the next day, the tree is completely barren. Now, there's another parable that he says where he tells um, the steward or the servant to cut it, cut the fig tree down because it's not bearing fruit. And the servant says, give it one more year. 
and let me tend to it. Let me dig around it. Let me add some new manure. And, and if it's still not bearing fruit, let's get rid of it. Okay. So what we might want to look at is what the metaphor here is. And are we looking at people that he is now talking to and he's instructing and he's teaching and they're leaving or they're not bearing fruit or maybe he's frustrated. I mean, you have to imagine Jesus asked a lot of a lot from people when he asked them to follow him, you know, give up everything, give up your family, you know, well, oh, well, you know, I have to, you know, bury my father, we'll let the dead bury the, you know, they're dead. And it's like, in a sense, it's very callous. And you can kind of understand that one of the things that Jesus is interested in, and I think this is a testament to the type of person he was, and that was, look, I'm going to tell you a lot of things here, and if you're interested in it, I will be happy to share it. But if you're not, and you're just half, if you're just kind of lukewarm about it, don't waste your time. Don't waste my time. And so there's an there's an element I think within his teaching, and his and some of the disciples maybe at that time because remember there was I mean he had as many as like seventy two or seventy uh, disciples. I mean we only know the the twelve, but he had others that were following him. So there might be an element as an illustration to show people that if you're not committed like I am, you're going to end up like this fig tree. And so I see it as an illustration point as opposed to an angry point. Right. But he's also kind of pointing, pointing to the fact that this is like a dead tree anyway. It would be bearing fruit if it really was alive. And are you alive? And I think that was the whole, that was part of his mission and his focus was to keep showing people what it meant to be alive and all the things that we live all the things that we do in our lives whether we worry or whether we're concerned about food or whether we're concerned about this or that or you know how we're going to make a living and all those he kind of put aside he, he put all that aside and he said look just really be dedicated to this particular thing and you're going to be amazed at what happens in fact part of his ministry was um uh eliminating his own ego believe it or not that's part of what his ministry was about because he kept saying you know he said in several ways um i do what my father tells me to do and the less i become the more god becomes right the more right the father manifests so he's recognizing the relationship between you know kind of putting his all into this and that his ego is is being filled or his ego is becoming less and less and less and he's being filled up with the spiritual energies of love and compassion and wisdom and that all of a sudden became you know the 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 turning point in his life when he recognized that and that's what sustained him I'm jumping around here a little bit forgive me but I wanted to go back to something and that is uh, you know the missing years what did your research reveal if anything about where he may have been, what he might have been doing during those those missing years. Okay, so I mentioned earlier about his inspirations. So we have to ask ourselves, is there something inside the the context of of the Hebrew wisdom traditions and the Hebrew stories that Jesus is drawing from? And the answer is yes, but not completely. So where is he drawing some other inspiration? And that 
was a bit of a revelation to me because I started to recognize that his rhetorical style that he used, and he used this a lot, particularly when it came to um, the Pharisees and other people that challenged him, Jesus kept using this, this, the Greek rhetoric. He used Greek style. He uses Greek argument. So Jesus never engages people in an argument. He always deflects the argument. And that's a very Greek idea. So where did he come up with that? Because it's not necess- it's not what I mean if you look at and read Paul, Paul tells you everything. You know, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin and I did that and I did this and I went here and I did all this and I was a rabbi and and he's very argumentative. And he loves to sh- present all the arguments as why something is the way it should be. But Jesus doesn't do that. He he's con- he confronts people but he does it in a very pithy kind of a way, in a very short short way, and in, in very short sentences. You know, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. And I mean, boy, and then you just walk away from that, you know, let people wonder what that means. Right, right. And that's how he that's how he operated. Okay, so where did that come from? The other thing is is that I he he got a lot he got a, a number of things from um, John the Baptist. When I looked at the Essenes, I realized that uh, there was a number of things from the Essenes that he is uh, using. There is an element of um, Egyptian religion that he's using. And then, surprisingly, he has a lot of Eastern influences in his stories and in his metaphor. So when he refer- when he kind of talks about, you know, do not fret, do not worry, do not, you know, look at the, the lilies of the field, they do not toil. Well, there's that's a Taoist concept. Um, when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the Father and I are one, the that particular concept is a Hindu concept. When um, he uses the kingdom of heaven as like a mustard seed, the the nature of the seed is also a Buddhist concept. They use that quite a bit. The fact that Jesus was um, on ministry, and as I understand it, and as I look at it now, it just seems like, as I said to you earlier, you know, the less I become, the more God becomes. Well, that's part of the Buddhist ministry. So we're seeing these elements of Jesus's ministry that is drawing from Eastern philosophy, Greek rhetoric, some Greek philosophy, um, some Egyptian history or uh, religious understanding and he's drawn from his own culture and part of the Jewish culture at that time was the um, uh, the wisdom traditions and you you know you can see that in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs but Jesus's wisdom is in a sense very different and the way he delivers it is very different here's another story I want to mention this other thing you kind of would think that when Jesus was ministering, he would be talking about, because they were under stress, I mean, this is what's really important to understand, is that uh, ancient Israel during the first century was under stress. Uh, The Romans uh, had conquered uh, years before, decades before, actually I think over a hundred years before, and um, they had King Herod as their puppet king, and King Herod was half Jew, 
The other, he was half Arab. Mm-hmm. So we're, ha- we're, we're dealing with uh, a Roman occupation. We're dealing with an illegitimate king. Uh, the high priest was also an appointee of the Roman Empire. So people were really frustrated and angry. And then there was all the, the kind of the rituals that were going on. And there was a lot of poverty because during um, Herod's reign, and this is actually quite interesting, uh, he, he initiated a massive building project with mausoleums and temples and the, re-temple, uh, the rebuilding of the temple and cities and uh, Caesarea Maritima and his palaces. This was a huge, huge undertaking. So there was a lot of people that, and a, a lot of people coming in. There's a lot of trade going on. And I think after that, that period of construction stopped, so too did the jobs. And so we're seeing in Jesus's sayings um, a lot about how I did all this work and you didn't pay me. Interesting. So there's an there's enormous amount of stress in people's lives, and there were multiple uh, levels of this stress. So you would think that when Jesus is going to be talking to his disciples and to those other followers and those who are listeners, you know that there might be some reference to King David and how he slayed Goliath, or how Moses. Um, brought the Israelites out of Egypt and there was the parting of the Red Sea or um, you can kind of list a few other types of um, patriarchs that Jesus could have used as a metaphor you know for his particular time and the funny thing is he doesn't no it was like the six o'clock news he doesn't do any of it and you have to ask yourself what happened how come he's not using these stories that his listeners would obviously gravitate towards and understand. And yet, he'll be talking about the mustard seed. What? The kingdom of heaven. What's that? Or the sower. I mean, his disciples were totally confused after he told that parable. They came to him and asked, what do you mean by that? And so, again, I kind of laugh at this because... They're thinking in terms of the stories from the Old Testament and how that information should be talked about today and taught at that, at that particular time um, for a variety of reasons. One would be some comfort and some solace, but he's not doing that. No, and that made, him, that made him more of an enigma. Yes. They didn't understand. But at the same time, as you say, he was talking about things that were very eye-level. Uh, it, uh, when he was talking about you know money and not getting paid for a day's work and all of these things, and that's what's as you have pointed out historically, that's what was going on. So he's very much contemporary and and that's right and and of his time, which is a very interesting window uh, into the history of of uh, Israel at that time. Well, the way I looked at it is is that Jesus is. Ref- Jesus's words and his wisdom are reflecting what's not going on in his society. So there's a direct correlation to what he's saying and what is going on in his society. I mean, if everybody's loving, why talk about love? Everybody recognizes, you know, love is love. How come he's, he seems to be emphasizing this so, so much? And why is it so prevalent in his ministry? It's because no one was. It was absent. Right, right. 
which is yeah that's the message was so and the other thing revolutionary. is that the exactly and the other thing is is that his number one subject was money so there must have been something going on in which the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer yes and he's now having to address the needs of the of the poor because it was so prevalent and what happened is is that people probably lost their sense of morality kind of like what's going on and I see I see this in our society today you know we're so driven by money that we lose all sense of compassion towards others and to our family and to and to um, just how you treat one another I mean there's just so much violence going on today and I think that that was very symptomatic of what was happening in Jesus's time just about out of time here, but I w- if you're sitting down with him, uh, I mean, he was he's really sitting across from you. What would you ask him? Not the questions that maybe you were able to glean from your research, but just here's your opportunity to ask him anything. What would it be? How could you do, how did you, how were you able to accomplish what you accomplished without being angry and disappointed? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, if you get up into the really big spiritual ideas and the the philosophy and whatnot, you know, we can all soar with that and go places. But when it really comes down to really basic ideas, which is how did you do it? And not only that, why did you do it? Because for the most part, I, I bet you he didn't get a lot of traction. There might have been, you know, we ha- we know that there was some traction, but how much traction? It probably wasn't until after his life that he got more traction than he did during his life. Right, right. Fascinating. Well, it's a very interesting and fresh perspective, interviewing Jesus, the man. How has it been received thus far? Pretty good. Very, very good. Um, There are been, uh, when you look at some of the Amazon reviews, uh, there have been a number of reviews that have stated that they appreciate Jesus more, they understand him more, they understand him better, they feel more connected to it, that Jesus is not a um, kind of a symbolic or archetypal figure, that there was a real presence there. And they really appreciate the fact that I was able to kind of dig down and, and reveal him and show him for what I believe he was. Did you feel his presence while you were writing this book? There were a number of things that occurred to me that seemed to be supernatural. There were days that I would write for six hours, and then the next morning, or eight hours or more, and then the next morning when I come in and I'd review um, what I wrote, there were several times, many times, when I go, I don't remember writing any of that. Really? Yep. Automatic writing. It's almost as if there were some automatic writing to it. And what's remarkable is, is that as I started asking questions, I would have to ask, I'd have to really, you know, be very specific about a question and then try to understand what the answer would be. And that put me into a space that I, that's, I, that is rare. I can, you know, every now and then I can get into it, but in this particular instance, I was able to just kind of zero in on it. Um, almost in a supernatural way. It was really quite remarkable. I mean, the answer was coming back to you, and it wasn't as you're reading it back to yourself? It's not even in your voice? And sometimes, yeah, in some instances, that was the case. It surprised me. Fascinating. 
Well, David, congratulations on interviewing Jesus the Man, and um, thanks for spending some time with me. Richard, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, offering me to be on your show, and maybe we can do this again another time. We will. We will. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to fill you in on what's in store for episode 128. Hey, this is Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. Many thanks to Conspiracy Unlimited for having me on the air. I'll see you all on The Confessionals. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, Hitler's escape from Germany. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.